69 of the Brooklyn Blast Furnace podcast. My levels are good. Your levels are perfect. We're just being extra cautious because the last time we did this, uh, we lost the first seven minutes. Yes, something like that. Somewhere around seven, give or take two minutes. Yeah. But uh, you like how I see how I was like, yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll surprise everybody with a song. And there was yeah, that no was, song. That was good. So are we into it or is this? Yeah, yeah, no. Okay. We're, we're, we're definitely going to roll and we're definitely going to attach so a song. Are we rolling? Or? We're, no, we're fucking rolling. This is, this is, we're, we're live. Oh, okay. Well, live. <laughs> <laughs> Recording live, I should gotcha. say. Gotcha. All right. Uh, well, welcome part two. Brendan Rafferty. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. How yeah, are you, I'm, I'm doing great. Good stuff. Uh, let's jump in right where I left off. I, I started at the end of the last podcast. One of the problems I have always have had drove my friends and family crazy is I'll start to tell a story, and then I'll, I'll get sidetracked with a separate story, and then another story, and then by the time I'm done, an hour later, I'll, I'll realize that to it. I completely for, I forgot to finish thing. where I started. I do the same thing. So I started uh, towards the end of uh, the last podcast. I wanted to uh, to really, really talk shit about Victory Records. Correct. Uh, And I started going into it, and I got sidetracked. Um, So a quick recap, okay, which sets up why I fucking hate Victory Records, (laughs) and wish Tony and some of the staff there nothing but harm. (laughs) No shit. Um. It's getting in, real in here, folks. <laughs> in 1995, we signed, uh, SFA signed to We Bite Records, which was based out of Germany, but they had technically two record labels, We Bite Europe and We Bite America. Um, this was basically a scam. They were the same label. They just used their two offices to kind of get over on bands, but that's what labels do for the most part. Okay. For example, as as I described last time, they took one band that was big in America, but not so big in Europe, and they signed them to We Bite Europe, with We Bite America being a foreign license in their contract, so they got less money from where they were going to sell more records. Right. Uh, SFA, we were much bigger in Europe than we were in the United States, so of course, even though we were dealing with we Bite Records in Germany, they signed us to We Bite America with the understanding that We Bite Europe was a foreign license and we would get less money for all the records sold in Europe, right. where we were going to sell more. Uh, but we, we knew it going in. It was, it was a scumbag move, but what are you going to do? Right. Um, <coughs> excuse but, me. But you also touched on how many cool. labels you said, nah. Yeah, well, that was that. Well, that was for our first album. This right, was, which was our crazy. I re-listened to it. Thing. I'm just like, wow, man. And I whispered you the name of the one out. Yes. Label. Yeah, yeah. I can't say that. Right. Um, I get it. But um, 
We Bite America wasn't really a label. What We Bite America was, what We Bite Records was based in Germany, period. They had one guy working at Victory Records in Chicago who answered the phone, and he was the We Bite America guy, but really he still worked for Victory Records in Chicago. Um... It was just a front. It was just a, they, they had a P.O. box, and they just had a lawyer in Chicago do it for them. Uh, but technically, we belong to them. Uh, there's a lot to go into, but to skip it over, we had a big problem with We Bite Records. They, they screwed us over. They messed up our artwork out of sheer stubbornness and incompetence. Not a big right. deal. What were the, the bands scheme. that were signed to them at the time? Oh, God, I can't even remember. remember. I cannot remember. Okay, that's cool. It uh, it should have been a lesson to me because they signed a lot of American bands, but most of them were just one-offs, and then they went somewhere else. Gotcha. And that that should have been a a red flag. Yes, absolutely. But the reason we went for them is they got in touch with us, and I said, hey, we want to do it. We want to hook you up, and we want to... We want to give you money to go into the studio. And as I mentioned in the previous podcast, we never had a record label offer us money up front, ever. Right. So we were like, hey, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and of course, they, they wound up only sending some of the money, which is... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Label shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bottom line is, we had a big falling out with We Bite. They never released our record in America, period. The only people in America who got it were those that imported it from Germany. Right. And, uh, but We Bite America owned the rights to that record. We Bite. Which record? Solace. Solace. That's what I figured, but okay. Which, I, which really, really bothered me because as an artist in general, we've gone over this, and I'm, I'm not going to get lost here in That's my story. Fine. We're going. You're usually never happy. With uh, with the quality of your work, you always you hear something and you say, mm, "Yeah, I wish it could be better." Whatever it is, sure, is a poem you wrote, a, a, a song you recorded, a anybody, painting you made, whatever. Yeah, anybody who's creative, you're always overcritical right. of your shit. I'm the as same you way, should be. I'm the same way with a lot of things. Any artist who pats themselves on the back and says, "Look how great I am," yeah. isn't an artist, right? As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh, Excuse me, I'm doing a lot of ums and um. That's all right. I'm trying to gather my thoughts. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, I was very happy with the recording quality. Right. And while yes, I look back at Solace, and there were some songs, I, I wince when I hear them because I, I think about what we should have done differently. For the most part, there are some songs I, I look at and say, "This is our best recordings." Right. Uh, not. Not to disparage the work that Don Fury did on our first album, which was terrific, but this, we had deliberately, we had, we had found a studio, um, our friends in Cause for Alarm had uh, just, uh, were putting out on Victory, uh, The Cheaters and the Cheated, okay. and I had an advanced copy of that, and I really loved the production on it, and so I, I you know, got a hold of Keith uh, before we toured together, and I, where did you record this? And we went to the same studio, same engineer. And uh, and very happy with the production on it. Um, my my only criticism of that record is things that we could have done differently, right? <clears throat> and things that I could have done differently. Okay. But um, 
the artwork was screwed up by WeBite in Europe. But once WeBite collapsed, somebody smarter than us and with more resources than us sued WeBite, and WeBite collapsed. Right. Okay. So our record never came out. God. So at first we're thinking, okay, great. We have a finished record. Let's go release it. We Buy Europe isn't repressing it, as far as we knew, unless they were doing it through some bootleg company, which would not surprise me. Uh, but we had a record that was completely done. Let's get another label to do it. And then we very quickly found out that because we were on We Bite America and We Bite Europe was a separate company, it was We Bite Europe that got sued and collapsed. We Bite America just ceased to exist. And everything We Bite America owned, including that album, became the property of Victory Records. Okay. Now enter Victory Records. Right. Okay. So immediately I find out, okay, Victory Records owns the right to this record. We can't release it. The moment we decide to try to release it, no go. We go to another label, which we also did, the first question we had was, well, not the first question, but one, one of the first questions was, you own the rights to this. We're not going to have any problems. No. Right. Uh, no. We're, we can't release this until you get free and clear. Um, now, how the fuck would Victory release that? How would, like... It could go either of two ways. Can't they just be like, yeah, all right, here's your shit, and we're not going to do nothing with it yes. until go? They could do that. So basically, started calling Victory Records. Could never get through to anyone. Worse than that, there was a receptionist who, like something out of some bad movie, just was not listening. Right. And like, no, I'm not some band. Hi, I'm on a band. Please sign my band. I'm calling up because you own the rights to my record. Right. We need to either, we need to buy it from you. We need if you're interested in releasing it, great. Or give it to us, sell it to us, or release it. One of those three, right. please. Which is logical and normal, you would think. They ignored us for months. Letters, faxes. Again, this is the 90s. 90s, sure. And phone calls. Phone calls which were going unresponded. Please, can you have... And before, the guy who ran We Bite America... He's the one who told me. I called him. He was leaving Victory. He's like, yeah, well, now I don't exist. I, my purpose here is done. Your record is now the property of Victory. You need to talk to Tony. Right. Um, he's the one. He knows he has it. We own it. He owns it, rather. You have to deal with him. <laughs> Months. <laughs> oh my Months God. of trying to get this album calling on the phone and in the middle of talking the receptionist clearly not remembering my name or I hear talking to other people about lunch orders not even writing down what I'm saying so you basically um, can give a shit right could not get through to anyone there uh, finally one day <clears throat> a friend of mine Rich Hall uh, books a showcase for Victory Records at CBGB to which or rather, he tried to book a showcase for Victory Records. Are you working at CBS at this oh, time? Oh, yes. Okay. And I told him, no, you can't book Victory Records showcase. It's not happening. All right. And I explained to him why. And he said, okay, Brendan, 
let me do this show. Tony from Victory will be in New York. You can talk to him. And where, is that, where are they based out of? Chicago. Chicago. Okay. Um, so, I'm flash forward a month later, I'm standing in front of CBGB, and I, I, I say to Tony, I'm talking to Tony face to face, and I, I break it down as simply as I can. Hey, Tony, Brendan, SFA, we were on We Bite America, our album Solace, you own it. You own the album. We would love it if you would want to release it, right. and we would tour our asses off to support it. Yeah. But if you don't want to release it, please let us have it back. Either let us have it back to release it on our own, or sell it. To or us. if we can work out some deal right. where we can get another label to buy it from you. Right. Please. And he's standing there. I said, "Well, yeah, that that sounds really interesting. Do me a favor." Uh, write all this out and send it to me. Okay. Which is okay. It's it's on paper. It's pro- okay. There's a paper trail. Right. right. Okay. Great. Fine. Right. So I, you know, write it up. Uh, I'll be back in Chicago on Monday. Um, I'll be in the office. Send this to me. We'll work it out. And I deliberately I send him a package uh, with um, the artwork that we had made up. Uh, we had a because I had a guitarist who was a, a, a graphic artist. We did mock layout for Victory Records layouts, and we also said. And I also one other thing I said to him. I said, if you are interested, if you are interested in releasing this, we'll sweeten the pot. We now own the rights to our first two albums. Right. We'll give them to you. Okay. You could have everything SFA's ever had. No cost. Right. And you could put it all out if you want. Right. Uh, just let us release this album in America, either through you or someone else. Please. Right. Reasonable. So I send him this long letter, not too long, two pages most, about how, listen, we own the right, we, you own the rights, we just want to... We just want it released. Right. And I was being very humble. I wasn't being filmed. I said, hey, listen, if you don't want to release us, if you're not interested in my band, that's okay. Right. No no hard feelings. You got a lot of bands on your roster. Just let us have it and let us work it out. But if you are interested, we'd love to, have, to put it out. And here's some mock-up. And we will work our asses off. We will go tour. We're in Europe all the time. Uh, with your promotion, we'll do the U.S., we will we will push the hell out of this record if you want to do it. Right. And if you don't want to do it, sell it to us. Or give it to us. That'd be better, but and if you do want to do it, here and we sent them mock ups of our first two albums with Victory Records artwork. Right. We own the we own the rights to our first album. Here, you want it? Right. Um time passed. I got a big manila envelope. Uh, contract size middle envelope uh, misleading uh, from oh, oh from Victory Records okay and it was a generic uh, response letter like I was some band that sent them a demo right 
Thank you for your interest in Victory Records. Ah, uh, one of them. But uh. right now, we are not signing any events, and it was filled with Victory Records stickers for me because I was a fan of Victory Records. Uh. They clearly ignored everything that I wrote. Right. He was just bullshitting me when he saw me in person because he wanted that Victory Records showcase. We had a couple of labels. In fact, uh, Christian Luft, my gute Freund von Rikers, right. uh, he was working over at Century Media Records, and he wanted to release that album. That would be fucking beautiful. Century yes! Media? Century Media? It's fucking lovely. Yes, we were, we, were, we were working on new material at the time, material that wound up becoming the unreleased album, War Songs, and we had this album sitting on the back burner. Right. And so, yeah, uh, he was hooking me up because right. he was there. He was like, yeah, we'd love to do you, but we need to be free and clear from victory. <sighs> and victory... Did they eventually fucking release your shit? How did you... No. So they, they never released it. So, so victory still to this day still owns that record? So many years have passed, I don't believe they own it anymore. Right. But the point is... While we were actively playing, they owned it. All right. They owned it. That's they the sat point. on it. Yeah. They refused to release it, and they refused to give it to us. And they never paid for it. They just inherited it, it from We Buy. From We Buy America. Right. And just out of pure, who gives a shit? This doesn't matter to me. Dickishness. Uh huh. They just That's fucked some scumbag us. shit. They totally scumbag fucked us. For no reason. Yeah. I had said it on the last podcast that I've heard nothing but horrible shit about Victory Records. I don't know them personally. I just know what, what I heard. Like that yeah. band Hoods, like that whole red, red record, The King is Dead, that's about Victory Records. Like that's fucking, it's, it's, I heard nothing but bad shit about that label. I don't know. No, there, there have been some crappy labels over the years, especially, oh my God. Hmm. It'll come to me later. Okay. Well, we actually have bullet points today, Brandon. Yeah, well, because there were so many things I didn't go through. Yeah, I know. (laughs) You're more prepared for this than I ever was. What the hell? That band Integrity. Okay, they're still active. Yeah, yeah, they were on a European label for a while. I forgot the name of the label. And I used to laugh because it was a label that was famous just for releasing bootlegs, for ripping off bands and releasing them. Oh, really? And I thought, and the Integrity album was one of the first... Uh, records that they released that was not a bootleg, and I just thought it was ironic. I'm trying to Lost and Found Records. Oh, okay, Lost and Found Records was was a bootleg label. Was it? Okay, I've heard of that. And I I thought it was really really ironic that Lost and Found that that a band called Integrity was signed <laughs> to a bootleg. Label. Hey, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> was, yeah, those, those people were awesome. What's funny is that we were on when we were on tour in Europe, we would always see. Bootleg records and bootleg merchandise for other bands. Right. Not us. Um, and one time, and sold by the people at Lost and Found. And one time we busted them. We were on tour, and I think Black Train Jack was playing on the road, and we had a day off. I and missed we were, that band. That was a good band. Yeah, yeah. We were driving through uh, Holland on the way. We had time. We stopped off at, at the Black Train Jack show. Okay. And we went in. Uh, it was a club we had played just a week or so earlier. Okay. And we walked in and we caught the same people who make the rounds 
at the merch tables. All right. Uh, we saw because it wasn't an SFA show. Mm-hmm. The same people selling bootlegs of other bands. When we got there, we saw all the bootleg SFA shit up on the wall uh, because they wouldn't sell it while we were playing. Cause right. Uh-huh. Lost and found. Yeah. Nice. Integrity signs to a bootleg <laughs> label. That's hysterical. There I was um, in the eighties. There was a um, a German distribution company called Geldhair. Okay. I mean, money here. It was basically. It's what beggars used to say, you know, give me money, money, right. gelt hair. Okay. Um, and gelt hair began as a, a, it was a P.O. box, and it began, you know, bands in the early 80s uh, would send gelt hair a bunch of records, and then, you know, months later, gelt hair would send back some money from selling it. You know, it was some kid out of a P.O. box. Hey, American bands, I'll, I'll sell your stuff in Germany. And he was getting dozens of records and then hundreds of records and then thousands of records because he grew. Right. And it was always on consignment in advance, no contract and nothing but a P.O. box. Oh, Jesus And record la- as hardcore got bigger in America and record <laughs> labels started sending him stuff, one day... He stopped sending back money. He kept taking these records and selling it, and he owed tens of thousands of dollars to different labels because he was late on. Oh yeah, I'll get. And it was all by mail back then. Yeah, <laughs> by oh. mail in a PO box. And then one day he just uh, closed up his PO box. Of course he did. <laughs> of course he did. He got a nice Stuff fucking like nest egg. Beautiful. He got a nice nest egg, and it was like, hey, you know what? Let's shut it down. No one know. Like he 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 went by some punk rock fake name. And he's and gone. He, one day, he's looking at his bank account and the checks he has to write and says, why Fuck am I this. doing this? Yeah, why am I doing this? I'm good right now. Fake yeah. name, everything. And then back then, poof, with a P.O. box and a fake name. Yeah. Guy's a half a genius. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you mentioned um, before, we, before we started that, we were talking about um, going cold turkey and quitting uh, drinking or smoking. Yeah. And uh, it reminded me of a story. I, Rikers, the guys from Rikers, because I just brought them up, they, they helped me stop smoking. Right. I had started smoking by accident when I was 21. Right. Yeah, we were saying, you started 21. I started smoking pot and drinking before I started smoking cigarettes. I think I started smoking cigarettes at 17. Yeah. I think. Like most people ask, well, how do you start, how do you start smoking by accident? It was simple. I was, I was traveling around Europe when I was a young man, out of the army, and... Uh, I was living in a squat in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Oof. And, yeah, before the ceasefire, good times. And uh, Oh, my God. Okay. There were the punks that I was living with, it was this little squat on Jerusalem Street in a neighborhood in Belfast called the Holy Land. Okay. Um, it, just like Alphabet City is called that because A, B, C, D. Yes. Um, in this neighborhood, uh, all the uh, street and avenues were named after a biblical location, so okay. they just called it the Holy Land. Gotcha. And uh, everyone there... Smoked hash mixed with tobacco. Okay. And so everyone's, I'm being social. Yeah. I wasn't even a pot or hot smoke, pot or hash smoker big time. Right. Because I was one of those guys who would get paranoid. Right. I, yeah, I wound up getting paranoid. Yeah. I would. If I fucking smoke pot right yeah. now, I would lose my fucking shit. Yeah, I'm the kind of person, like, if I was in a room full of people and I, I took a couple hits off a joint. I would just be sitting in the corner quietly, and, and somebody could say something totally innocuous and innocent, like, hey, did you see that TV show last night? It's pretty funny. And I could pipe in, 
Oh yeah, I saw that. It was pretty funny too. Yeah. And then I'll spend the next half hour with my hands on my head, wondering what did I say? What did I say? Did they it. all think I'm stupid? And so yeah, yeah, bad, bad for me. Bad. But I was living in a squat. I was smoking hash mixed with tobacco every day, just you know, being social. And then I found myself uh, down in uh, Dublin a month or so later uh, for the uh, 1,000th anniversary of the city and big festivities. And I, I met up with some people and we're sitting in a bar. And uh, the very first cigarette I ever had in my life, aside from when I was 11 years old and I couldn't inhale and I was trying to look tough showing off or something, right. um, the very first cigarette I ever had in my life was trying sitting in that tough. bar. That's funny. What a, yeah, 11 I, years I, old. I, no, I get it. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, I was sitting in a bar and a friend of mine was smoking and I, I, I had an urge because I spent the last couple months inhaling tobacco with that nicotine yeah. mixed with the hash yeah. and it was in my system and I was hooked the first cigarette I smoked was because I needed a cigarette Bugged out. and then I came back to New York sometime later and I was working security in nightclubs back when um, you could smoke everywhere oh yeah and so when you're standing there and everyone's smoking and you're a security you're standing there with your hands folded in front of you with nothing to do you smoke. I became a smoker. Right. Uh, in 1994, I was on tour with Rikers opening, and we uh, we were in Italy. I got sick on tour. Uh, that was terrible. Uh, I got an upper respiratory infection. The kind of just the kind of sick where one week at home under a blanket you'll be fine. Right. But when you're on tour, there's no. I'm going to lay in bed for a week. No. Even a week at <laughs> home under a blanket's a fucking rough one. Right. But. It's what I need. I, what I wound up doing was every day I was, I would literally crawl out of the van to do the show, crawl back in the van. Everyone's having a good time. And me, I'm coughing up my lungs and I'm just right. in pain, getting worse. And we walk into this um, outside of, a, on the outskirts of Venice, where this big giant warehouse club, and they, they rolled up the loading gates and there's that smell. It's early, musty morning after rains, and it's, there's a, that dank smell of a concrete floor yeah, yeah. with that stale, stale beer in the air. Yeah. And it's cold still. It's the fall. It's October. And I'm standing there shaking, um, coughing up my lungs, and that that dank, moldy, mist, mildewy smell everywhere, and I'm trying to light up a cigarette at uh, the same time. Of course. And I stop myself, uh, what the fuck am I doing? I put it out, and the only reason I was able to quit is because I was on tour, and thank you, Rikers, and they thank me too, because cigarettes were expensive as hell in Germany, and I, uh, I had probably two cartons from the duty-free at the airport, Right. and I just gave it to them. And I said... Get him out of here. I don't want to ever see him again. Um, and you've been cold turkey since then? Yeah. Well, the reason it was easy to be cold turkey is, as anyone who's been on tour knows, there's no privacy. Right. There's no... When, you, when you're back home, you could try to quit cold turkey, but then when you're not around anyone, who's to stop you from, right. oh, I'll just have one. Right. And then that turns into... Yeah. And that turns into a pack. That turns into a habit. But there's no privacy... You're asleep, you're in a van, 
you're sleeping somewhere, you're always surrounded by your bandmates or the other band. Sure, there's so never any privacy. There's no ability to run off. So I had a month more of not being able to sneak it, and that was enough. It was a rough month, but that was enough to get it out of my yeah, system. Yeah, oh, you get fucking irritable as shit. I mean, I quit smoking <coughs> two, two Fridays ago, and I have like my little small little vape pen, like not the big fucking thing that looks like a remote control, like a little small little thing. It's like the size, not even the size of a regular pen, and I've been good. And then maybe I'll wean myself off because I like like we said before we started rolling. I mean, this will be out by then, but tomorrow, October first, will be four years without me having to drop a booze at all. So that's a good thing. So now I'm I'm, I'm taking away my vices little by little. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, you know they got to do it. Forty three. I'm no fucking spring chicken, Brendan. Oh, 43. My heart breaks for you. <laughs> Listen, it's not my fault when I was fucking hatched. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Yeah. So, all right. Talk to me. Talk to me. All right. Well, you wanted to, you wanted to uh, you wanted to shed some light and some truth about <coughs> about. Um, all right, sir. All right, you have your little list over here, and there was one thing that was very interesting that piqued my interest. And hold on, let me go to it real quick. I have it right here. I took your right screenshot. There. Yeah, but yeah, but the bottom of it's not there. No, that is. Is it? Oh, yeah, there is. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about... Uh, oh, man. What's up with this... Uh, the 1988... That, that whole line, 1988 Skinhead Madness from being on Geraldo and that rest of that line, especially one to the last four words on that... <laughs> I'm like fucking busting to find this out. Oh, okay. Well, I have an there. idea on who it might be, but I need. No, to know no, 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 no. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Hey, you never know. <coughs> All right. It's a big thing that people have always ask me about. <clears throat> All right, so let's start. 1988 skinhead man is from being on Geraldo to working in the movement and dealing with extremists in the JDO and the JDL. Yeah, that was some interesting stuff happening, and it was blown out of proportion. You were on Geraldo. Yeah, you were, were you were on that famous one with Jimmy G and all that stuff. You were there that day with Jimmy G. Was it on Geraldo? That was. Are you Donahue. talking about the hardcore, hardcore Donnie? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm getting the mix we'll up. We'll get to that. Donahue ones, right. Geraldo ones. The Donahue one. I was in the army. Okay, but the funny thing is, I was not. I was the Donahue one. To put that in perspective, a lot of people are familiar with the whole New York hardcore appearance on Phil Donahue uh, with Jimmy Gestapo being up on stage with who was it? Then Ray Bees was there. No, no, no. See, no. I'm thinking of another one. I just recently saw a clip of one that of those shows. People with- are talking with Natalie Ray Bees and Todd Youth. Right, you see, I'm getting them all mixed up. There was several shows with a bunch of people on there, so I'm getting them all fucked up. So no, he was on stage with uh, Jimmy, Natalie, and. Uh, and uh, Chris from uh, the Crumb Suckers, who clearly um, the record label put up there, okay. Combat must have put him up there. Okay. So uh, and they loaded. So they they put like the guys from Nuclear Assault in front. It is you know. Yeah. They were just they were they saw it as an opportunity to promote. Sure. <clears throat> but um, the Donahue thing was in reaction to a New York Magazine article that was published. Okay. By uh, Peter Blonder, who I actually became friends with years later. I reconnected thanks to social media. I was home in New York when he was talking to people. Uh, hardcore was just getting big. There was a lot of crossover stuff happening. This was like 1985. And uh, 
this uh, the reporter from New York Magazine decided to do a story about this subculture. And the problem is, it was a subculture that didn't want a story about itself out there. Right. The problem that happened, and there was a lot of backlash back then, which was really unfortunate, because the article, when it came out, a buddy of mine sent it to me. I was in the Army, and I read it. I knew the people that were in there. And my friend Becca Levine was on the cover. She was this new girl from Long Island, nice kid. And as soon as I read it, I knew, oh, my God, she's going to get her ass kicked. She didn't do anything wrong. But there were some people on the scene back then who were really cliquish and really catty. Still to this day. Yes. (laughs) And Peter Blonner was doing the story about hardcore kids and like any journalist doing a story he was trying to put a human face on it okay so he did it he decided as he was interviewing a bunch of people i remember being backstage with him um doggy style legal weapon murphy's law and i think social distortion were playing and uh we're hanging out backstage with doggy style and he was there talking to everyone. And Peter Blonner, the, the, the reporter, um, tried to humanize it by making the story, while talking about hardcore, every now and then he would go back to the story of this girl. Okay. Um, new girl on the scene. To try to look at it through her point of view. Okay. And... So a lot of the quotes come from her, and he took a little bit of a uh, of a dramatic license by. There's a part in the story where Becca is talking with Jimmy Gestapo, and he kind of, and she's a little starstruck, you know. Oh, the guy in the band, I'm talking to him. Right. But that was really it. Right. Peter Blonner made em- it embellishes into, it into like embellishes into like. Thing. Oh, she met this rock star that was cute, whatever. Now, so a couple things happened here. You had Jimmy Gestapo's girlfriend got pissed. That clique got pissed. And then there were people that were pissed for, for contradictory reasons. One, we don't like that there was a story about hardcore. Right. And then it was... We don't like that there was a story about hardcore and it was about this girl we don't fucking know. Why wasn't it about me? Right. Uh, Oh, God. And I remember reading and thinking, oh, my God, she's going to get her ass kicked. And, of course, she did. And jump forward. Years later, uh, when I got out of the service, I'm talking to people who weren't even around back then. And when the name Becca Levine came up, I reconnected with her for a while afterwards, too. Um... People would say, oh, I hate her. I said, why do you hate her? Do you even know her? Do you even know her? Oh, no, no. But that was like the cool thing. That was the it's like <clears throat> At that time, that was the person that like, you why needed you to hate. <laughs> and she was the target for the minute. It I was like that. putting X's on your hands. And uh-huh. you know, oh, God. Right. <laughs> I gotta, if I want to be cool, I got to put an X on my hand and hate Becca Levine. Right. <laughs> He's the one, and, she was the one to hate for the moment. Yeah, the oh, Donahue show. Um, yeah, whatever. Everyone, I, I can't say about because I wasn't there, but right. you know, it was clear. Donnie was being a dick, and he had a he had a uh, 
point he was trying to make, regardless of what anyone else said. Right. And uh, nobody noticed what he was doing until it was done, and nobody was taking him seriously. Whatever, you know, right. I, I wasn't there. Right. What about Geraldo? Well, the Geraldo thing was interesting. I actually ran into Andy Scum uh, about a month or two earlier uh, on in Times Square. Andy Scum was a skinhead, and we're talking about skinheads, and a producer from Geraldo was standing there, because it was right outside Geraldo's studio. Okay. Andy was in the audience, I think. I, I don't remember the circumstances. If you're listening, Andy, or I could write you, you could tell me. And the producer... Uh, skinheads were just starting to be topical in the news again because of some shit that was happening in other cities. Uh, and Oprah had done stuff about skinheads, so... Which they started shedding the negative light, and if you think of right. a skinhead, you're thinking of a Nazi skinhead, and all so, that blah, 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 right. Ignorant shit. Um, this producer's talking to us, and he's like, hey, hey, can you get us in touch with some skinheads? And we're like, yeah, sure. And then it was, listen, we wanted to do a show, and we're talking to them, and we're like, yeah, but you know, skinheads aren't Nazis. They're not all Nazis. Right. And the producer is like, can you get us in touch with uh, some people who are white power skinheads and some who and and some who aren't, and maybe we could we could have a show about that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And he's like, yeah, we we know some people. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh huh. And uh, I got in touch with uh, with a few people who were on that side of the fence, and. Uh, most they they were not interested. They they weren't by. They're like no no. Yeah. I, I don't I don't want to have that argument on TV. No thank you. Right. Some of my friends out in Brooklyn who were on the fence. Some who were definitely on the other side of the fence. And also uh, one guy who played in a crossover metal band who was a skinhead, uh, who was clearly white power. He didn't want to do it. Uh huh. Um. And. Uh, Oh, and uh, <laughs> I'm mouthing names to him because I'm trying to be nice because I, yeah. I I don't want to. He's not that way anymore, so I don't want to put that out there. Right. <laughs> and it's uh, so interesting. <laughs> oh my god. Um, anyway, he didn't want to do it, but then we got <laughs> calls from the producer. There was an attack on the subway. It was big in the news in the local papers. Uh, the guys from, and I can tell you who it was. It wasn't New York Skins. It was, um, there was a show, and the guys from Uprise, this Nazi band from Pennsylvania. I was going to say Pennsylvania, where fucking, uh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where, where was the big fucking. When you talk about Nazi skin at Allentown. Allentown, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, what the oh, fuck? Yeah, yeah, Allentown, yeah. Pennsylvania. It's like, you know. It was like, whenever you, when you're talking about hardcore shows on the road and touring, at any time when he says Nazi skins, you're like, Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Allentown. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh. Anyway, uh, Uprise, uh, apparently, they got into a brawl with some guy on the, on the subway. They kicked his ass. And the guy, it turned out, I mean, I'm not going to defend Uprise because fuck those guys. But uh, the story was blown out of proportion. It was some drunk douche in the middle of the night with his wife and baby on the subway starting up with the skinheads. They kicked his ass. 
and it turned into a whole big thing. Right. Nazis try to beat up baby. Oh, of course <laughs> they do that. Right. <laughs> and it became a whole big thing. <sighs> and got the call from the producers and wound up going on the show. And the way it was going to go, the original format, there were these um, Nazi skins from California who came in for the show. I, I need to preface. I need to say something really important. This really has to be put out there. First, um, did we have a problem in New York? Not really. No. Were there in the 80s, were there some skins who classified themselves as white power? Tiny pockets. There were, but the difference is these guys were not, and I've said this before, it needs to be said again. Sure. They were more like the Archie Bunker type of racist. Right. They weren't out on the streets, you know, jumping people. Right. These were... Like even the like bigot skinheads, <laughs> and I was, I was friends with some of these guys, and I felt bad. Right, you know, like the, the the Brooklyn White House guys, who got this reputation that was undeserved. It was mostly you know posturing. Yeah, they were whatever. Some of them were racist. Right. Um, but you were much more likely. So yeah, whatever. They would get drunk and play Screwdriver and sing along, right. but. But only the first couple records. No, I know, no. I know, I know, but I know. I said they weren't. <laughs> you were much more likely to see them sitting at a bar like Aztec or Nightingales with their drinking a beer with their arms around a black punk right. than out there on the street fighting. Right. Because it was. It wasn't serious. It was like half assed it and was even, more of a look. Even those, even the few, no, but even the few that meant it, and there were some that meant it, it was their thing. It wasn't something, they weren't out there flying the flag and, like, starting fights or organizing things. They right. were, it was their, their fucked up beliefs, whatever. Right, right, gotcha. In fact, I felt bad after the whole, uh, I should, I'm going to get back to it because it's important, because after this whole Geraldo episode, things escalated in a bad way as well right um when we got called for the Geraldo show it was going to be a few of us up front um I had hair I had been growing out my hair since I got out of the army right so I wasn't going to pretend I was a skinhead right um we were uh we, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting close right. here. The way the format was going to go, it was going to be you had serious Nazi skinheads from the National Front and the American Front on one side, as well as uh, Metzger, John Metzger from War, the White Aryan Resistance. Okay. These were from the West Coast. These were not people who just told jokes. These were. These were the real deal organizers. And uh, the way it was going to break down was the way Geraldo set up the shows. As if you've ever seen any of these shows back then, it was um, they'd have a group of guests on stage, commercial break, alternate guests on stage, commercial break, so on. And uh, the way it was going to go, they had us in the front row waiting, our turn. When I say us, it was me, Gwen, Crucified Pete, a uh, couple shady people who really 
weren't anti-racist. And then there was also Marcus, who uh, founded Sharp. Okay. Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice. And Troy, who was also part of that. Um, also, I, didn't, I didn't know who started Sharp. It was I Marcus. Um, okay. I, I don't... I don't want to say his last name. Okay, that's, you know. Um, it was Marcus, who, just because. Yeah. In fact, no, it was many fine. years he asked me, don't tell my last name. It's not necessary. Um, Marcus uh, from Sharp. Marcus started Sharp, and Marcus started Sharp pretty much as a reaction uh, to the bad press that was going out there because he was tired of walking down the street, him, his girlfriend, his friends, getting screamed at and called Nazis. Right. And they used to hand out these 8.5 by 14 flyers promoting Sharp. Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice, Not All Skinheads Are Nazis was a big banner headline. Sure. Uh, crucified Skin logo, the Sharp logo, and underneath that a uh, paragraph of he- the history of skinheads. Right. And Which so many people don't In fact, I know. first met Besides, I probably saw him at shows, but I first met and talked to Marcus when he was on the platform at the West 4th Street station, handing out flyers like a freaking Jehovah's Witness out there, handing out flyers to people getting on the train, just trying to get the word out. So we had a talk. Oh, my God. I got a confession to make here that's separate of that. I was working at a, a nightclub at the time, MK's, and... I was working till 5 in the morning. We had to be, and I was living in Queens, and then I had to be at the studio at like 11 o'clock or so. Right. In Geraldo. And uh, so the night before, I had done cocaine once in my life, and it didn't do anything for me. It was a girlfriend, sweet girl. I I was tripping on acid at the time, and she said, here, try some coke. And it did nothing for me because I was because you're on acid, really tripping hard. Yeah, isn't so, that bugged out when you're on acid and every it cancels out everything right. else that you shove in your body? Right, which is fine. Part, it's just fucking bugged out. Yeah, so so it's fucking weird. Thank you for my hurt first hit of cocaine, Julie. Oh but <laughs> it didn't do anything. Uh, and as a result, it didn't do anything. And I'm working at this nightclub, MKs, and I said to a buddy of mine, Dave, who worked there. Uh, he was a famous graffiti artist at the time, okay. Dave Smith. He had this tag, Smith's, Smith Sane. Okay. Uh, for the 80s graffiti people, he was big. Uh, yeah, sure. I, um, he's famous. He's famous. And uh, he also dealt coke at the club, and he had quit, and he, he handed me a 35-millimeter uh, film canister, which is about the size of a large shotgun shell, Yeah. filled with cocaine. And he said, you know what? I'm done dealing. You could have this. And he gave it to me with a couple of straws. Now, I didn't know anything about cocaine. I only done it the one time. And I said, hey, you have any? I, I got to stay up all night because I, I, I can't go to sleep because I'm going to oversleep. Because, again, I lived in Queens. I didn't have a car. I was going to get out of work at 5, get home by like 6.30, and then have to leave at 10 or leave at 9.30 to make it to the studio in time. Right. So there, there was no There was no wiggle room in order. Was, so it was like... I can't get three hours of sleep. I might as well just stay up and crash hard tonight. Sure. So he gave me this. Oh, fuck. I'm up. I'm losing my mind. I I wound up in the course of 24 hours. Thank God I was young or it would have killed me. I did the whole thing. Oof. And, in fact, at like 9 in the morning, I I called my girlfriend all desperate. And she said, you're fine. And I'm laying on the floor in my kitchen. My heart's beating like a drum. Uh-huh. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You just go down. Yeah. Relax. Don't have any. 
but I also I couldn't stop having any right. <laughs> until it ran out. And uh, if anybody's wondering, who's seen the video, wondering why I still have my jacket and gloves on, it's because my hands were shaking. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> because uh, I was wired like a motherfucker. Um, if I look like I haven't slept in days in that video, that's why. Uh huh. Um, See, now I gotta go back and watch that shit. <laughs> I'll show you before you leave. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> um, he, uh, anyway, the schedule for the Geraldo show. Uh, it's like a long taping, <laughs> isn't it? No, no, it's, it's, it's taped in real time. Okay. Uh, because they, they, you know, you gotta, they're there with a stopwatch. They, they do it, then they, and the segment and the time, however long, two and a half minutes for commercials and come back. Right. Um, it was gonna, it, it was scheduled to go like this: the Nazis on one side of the panel. They also had we're we're first row in front of the stage. On the left, to our left, were a whole bunch of other Nazi skins there. Who were there, and we're we're ready to go. It's, it's, it's going to get ugly. Yeah, but we had decided we had a meeting beforehand because at the time all the press coverage was skinheads or Nazis. Right, it's all negative shit. Right? It's all the same. Sure. And we decided we're not going to fight. We're not going to fight because the most important thing is if we see them outside the studio afterwards, fuck yes, we're going to fight. Right. But we're not going to fight. Because we need to speak. Right. We don't want to get thrown out. Right. We need to be heard. We need to get the message out that not all Nazis are skinheads. Right. Not all skinheads are Nazis. Right. Um, so the way the format was going to go, it was going to be um, the Nazi skinheads on one side, and then on the other side, the family that got jumped on the subway. Okay. Can I crack this? Yeah, yeah, please. That's why it's out here. Go ahead. Um... Nazis on the it's subway. juice. It's juice, folks. Yes. <laughs> Drinking apple juice over you getting crazy. Um, it was going to be the family and the Nazis, two commercial breaks. Then it was going to be the Nazis on one side, uh, some rabbi and Roy Innes from the Congress of Racial Equality. Yeah, I remember that guy. Then two commercial breaks. And then it was going to be the Nazis on one side and us on the other. Right. Um, it didn't make it that far. Okay. Um, uh, during Roy Innes Roy and the family spoke, babble, the guy was still a drunk babbling guy. Um, then it was Roy Innes and the rabbi. Roy Innes, it turned out, had been previously been in a fight on some other talk show. Yes. And so Geraldo was kind of prob pro prodding him and provoking him. Like, go ahead. Come on, Roy. Go ahead. Yeah. And uh, when, when, uh, when it broke out, uh, it was uh, John Metzger from the White Aryan Resistance called Roy Innes a monkey. Roy Innes stood up. Um as soon as Roy Innes stood up and started walking to John Metzger, Metzger's sitting down like, sit the fuck down. And now, it was on because now the, all the Nazis that were sitting off stage and all of us in the front row 
Now we all started to stand up. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then Roy and it started to choke. Metzger and it was on. There were a couple of blows, but really <clears throat> it wasn't really a big fight. It was a right. little scuffle. And most of what I did in it and Marcus did in it were like trying to break it up. Right. And like on if you see the long video, we're telling our people sit down, sit down. Right. Because we don't want to get thrown out because we haven't to make a statement here. We're right. there to be heard. Afterwards it's fine. So then after that there were no they the Nazis got thrown out, which is unfortunate because we didn't get to confront them and we didn't get to fight them after. Because uh, I would have been down with that. Sure. I would have been down with that, stating our case, saying what needed to be said, and then fucking jumping over and fighting them right there. Right. But it was more important, sit down, we got we to gotta, we gotta do this. Which is a shame. Because I was young and dieseled and, and fucking coked up. I was ready to beat someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Young Diesel and fucking full of blow. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so after the commercial breaks, and as far as Gerardo getting hit with a chair, I didn't see him get hit with a chair. Yeah. Maybe he did. But I did see him on the ground getting his face kicked in. Right. <laughs> okay. He might he, he. I think he kind of retold the story to avoid that... I he, got my ass. He doesn't want to. Br- yeah, they hit me with a chair, those cowards. Not. I was curled up in a fetal position trying to protect my face. Um, All right, and I ate a boot. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> they got thrown out, and then the rabbi and Roy Innes were left up on stage to talk while they, uh, instead of putting us up on stage to speak, the whole format was changed. They just called us up and from the Geraldo just wanted to rant. They all wanted to rant. And they just called us up and we got to speak. And uh, I got to be the first one to go on television to explain that not all Nazis were skins and turned it over to Marcus. Right. Um, and he took it from there. And that, that was a win-win. The funny thing is, I don't know if you remember, I mean, this was 1988. Um, I left the taping... I went down to St. Mark's to go catch up with my girlfriend at the time. She worked at St. Mark's Comics. Okay. And she was like, oh, how'd the taping go? I was like, ah, we didn't even get to speak from the stage. We got to speak a little bit. There was a scuffle. Yeah. I said, there was a small scuffle. I said, I wouldn't be, and I said, I wouldn't be surprised if it made like, you know, page five of the paper tomorrow. Uh Uh-huh. What I didn't expect, it was the front page of every paper in the country. Everywhere. Uh, because they knew, I forgot what network, NBC, let's say, yeah. they suddenly, whoa, we got a scandal. And they ran the fuck out of fuck it. Fuck yeah, they did. And that was everywhere. Yep, I remember that. I was what, young. What really kills me, what really bothers me, the photo that was on the front of everywhere, I'm dead center in the photo. Oh, my back. shit. I'm wearing a, a button-up peacoat shirt, jacket. But underneath it, I'm wearing an SFA shirt. And if my jacket had been off, uh. the SFA logo would have been dead center in the front of this picture. On every fucking headline. Ever. Every newspaper in the country. All right. That would have been great publicity. Well, I would have loved that. Of course it would have. I used to go like, there was that, um... <clears throat> there was that shooter at that college in Massachusetts. Mass shooter who was wearing a sick of it all shirt. 
Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I saw the picture in the paper, he's wearing a Secret of an All shirt. The first thing I did was I got on the phone and I called Pete. I was like, you lucky motherfucker. Oh, shit. You lucky. That kind of publicity. I used to give out shirts and I tell people, if you ever go nuts, wear my motherfucking shirt. <laughs> uh, and the same thing like um, just the other day. Uh, I was reminding Paul, those um, these not Nazi skinhead brothers. Oh, Paul from Shooter. Okay. These Nazi skinhead brothers from Nazi skinhead brothers from I don't know from where Pennsylvania. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> all right. They yeah. murdered their parents and their brother. They went cross country, and when they were caught, when they were arrested, one of them was wearing a sheer terror shirt. I was like motherfucker. Oh my god. <laughs> I was like free publicity. God damn. Fuck. All right, so now... Um, but... Hang on. Who's the FBI snitch, Brendan? Whoa, 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 whoa! You're jumping all over the place <laughs> Fuck, here. I want to get to that. <laughs> well, actually... Who's um, the fucking rap bastards? <laughs> it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't who you would think. I mean, there, there were some sketchy people, but I, I don't want to repeat um, rumors that are pretty certain. But I'll get to that one in a second. All right. So right away, suddenly... We're, we're all elevated to scene celebrity status. I got... From that show, I had... Um, Raven, if you're listening, thank you. Uh, I Raven's had, the best. No, no. Different Raven. Oh, not know. Raven Murphy's Law? No. Oh, okay. No, no. Raven she Murphy's knows, Law is no, a no. fucking sweetheart. There, I'm referring to there were... Being young and unattached at the time, shortly after there were... After the Geraldo show aired a month later... I am. Um, I got approached by a lot of women at bars. Is what I'm saying. And okay. It was a very good time <laughs> in my <All> right. life. <laughs> um, so that's why I was thanking her. Okay. You know? uh, uh, this is a male <laughs> raven. That I'm no, no, about. no, okay. no, no. Uh, Thank you. Person? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, that, was, that was my first celebrity moment. <laughs> there you go. Cool. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, jumping forward, there, there was a lot of stuff going on. One of the things that happened is I deliberately, when uh, I talked about how, when I spoke on Geraldo, I just said that the Nazi skinheads actually are a minority among skinheads. Big time. And I said, especially here in New York, and I also threw in a little dig. I said, they are a minority among the, the Nazis are a minority among the skinhead. We treat them as a minority. And every now and then we remind them. Right. Uh, which was kind of a veiled threat. And uh, this is where things... You suddenly had... Because now... Well, what happened in the outside world, unfortunately... Um, you know, affected our world, the scene. So you now had to kind of take a side. Right. You couldn't be on the fence anymore. It was no longer something that people ignored. It was, okay, we, we got to do something about this. And I felt kind of bad. One day, I'm on 9th Street, and uh, the guys from the White House, I, I had just come out of the uh, the Aztec bar. And I had never even heard of the, the White House. The White House, uh, the guys the guys from the Brooklyn White House, a couple of skins from the Brooklyn White House, were like, hey, Brendan, we need to talk to you. And they weren't angry. They, well, they they were upset. They were hurt more than anything by my comments. 
and we actually had a very adult grown-up conversation. Which is rare. Leaning on, leaning on a car, and they're like, why'd you say those things? Right. I thought we were friends, and I said we are. But we have to look at the big picture. Right. You have to look at the big picture. You get skinheads out there that are getting jumped. They're walking down the street being called Nazis. That had to be fixed. Had to take a stand. Had to take a side. And I even said, I know you guys. Listen, we're, we're sitting here having a civil conversation about all this. Right. You know, and, and they were being, they were, they were upset. Genuinely, they were a little mad, but they were more upset than anything. It's like they felt like it was almost like a betrayal. And I was like, "Hey, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean to paint you guys as bad guys because you're really not that bad guys. I didn't mean to paint you as that, but this had to be put out yeah, there. It's more about the to show a picture. difference, you know. Because the truth is, you know, and I, I didn't put it in these words, but you know, well, what we can all coexist on this scene. You know, it, people don't understand that. It's hard to explain, right?" And then, of course, somebody saw me talking to, like, five, you know, skins from the White House, ran around the corner to find a bunch of people. Hey, and Brennan's getting jumped by five skins from the White House. And a whole bunch of people come running over, ready to fight. I was like, guys, guys, stop. We're just fucking talking. talking yeah. We're just talking. And they're all screaming. And this broke my heart because these were not bad guys. And they're all... Like the whole Avenue Way regulars are all screaming, threatening to fuck them up, and all this shit. And there, there's, there, there was no more chance to have a talk. And those guys just walked away, and they really never came back. Right. I mean, they did, but not, not, not the same. It was different. Uh, they were, but you know what? In the big picture, it's like people who know and who were there know that. When it all came down to it, we in New York, we really all got along. Right. But New York was really different than a lot of other cities and a lot of other scenes where you couldn't. Right. Like, even just across the river in Jersey, the Nazi skins were out there, you know, vandalizing synagogues and jumping people. Yeah. They were close to Pennsylvania. Be- yeah, there you go. <laughs> close to Pennsylvania. You start getting shitty. Um, <laughs> But New York City was New York City as a city is different from anywhere else in the country, sure. and so was our scene. Yeah, um, and, and I felt bad that in a way that these guys suffered for it. They didn't deserve they didn't deserve some of the shit they got because even though they were on that side of the fence, they they, they weren't you know like the others. They right. were. I, it sounds weird when I'm saying like that anyway, but uh, I get it. So uh, separately. We did another. We did a. We did some other shows, um, and uh, we also got immediately approached uh, by Mordecai Levy from the JDO, the Jewish Defense Organization, which was an offshoot, a more militant offshoot of the JDL, right? The Jewish Defense League, and I'm not going to name names here because I. I don't want to incriminate some good people. Right. Yeah, we don't have to mention names. But they, uh, and some things statute of limitations are up on, so it doesn't matter. But he was feeding us information. Um, Like, oh, hey, this Nazi skin, these Nazi skins from Jersey who vandalized, you know, the the synagogue. Uh Uh-huh. These are their names. This is where they live. Oh, boy. They were... uh, the JDO was kind of like a 
prodding us and provoking us, and some of us, some of us went for it. Like, oh yeah, okay, thanks. We'll we'll use this. We had names and addresses. We had pictures of some people, stuff like that. Uh huh. And the JDO, what are you looking up? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just looking. Go on. The JDO. Oh, you're looking up JDO or Mordecai Levy? No, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to every word you're saying. The JDO. You're schooling me right now. I'm getting information from you, man. The JDO was taken. There were a couple of uh, skins, particularly some of the ones who lived in Long Island. Again, I will not name and. They were taking them out to uh, some tactical gun ranges, teaching them some stuff, um, teaching them how to make bombs, teaching them how to shoot. Okay. You know, they were... And the press was all over this. Uh, CBS did a five-day special on their evening news following skinheads, and it was... We were on that as well. And they edited it. They're trying really hard to, to push for this... Is there a violent confrontation in the offing between the two skinhead groups? That uh, kind of nonsense. Right. Um, in fact, there, there, there's a great sequence. Troy, we're all trying to become... We, were, we did an interview inside CBGB, and Marcus was being very calm. The reporter was trying to, like, provoke him. He's like, no, we're not about that. He didn't want to get into politics. He just kept repeating the message. We're not Nazis. We're not racist. You can say whatever you want about this and that, but we just want you to get that across. Right. Well, and, you know, the report, well, don't you hate those guys? Don't you want... Mar- Marcus wasn't taking the bait. Right. And then finally, Troy uh, got mad and started screaming, you know, we're sick. We're sick and tired of the media trying to manipulate us. Right. And I'm watching the reporter tap the cameraman cameraman turns the focus of the camera on Troy. Troy's standing up on the riser at CB's. Uh, and the cameraman's got to zoom in right on Troy, screaming and yelling, being pissed about the media trying to make a story that isn't there. Right. The irony is, when the story aired, uh-huh. it's the reporter. Is it possible that there's a violent... Uh, will there be a violent con- confrontation in the future? Who knows? This one skinhead, blah, blah, blah... And they cut to, as the reporter's narrating, they cut to video of Troy waving his hands and angrily screaming and pointing his finger, but no audio of Troy. Uh-huh. Just the reporter saying, and this one skinhead is prepared for violent confrontation with the oh, Nazis. Just fuck. making a story that wasn't there. Right. Now, fucking media. Mordecai. Mordecai Levy from the JDO. The JDL and the JDO had a split, and the JDL was saying, we kicked Mordecai out because he was giving information to the FBI. Right. Um, one, one of our friends got arrested, involved in a confrontation of sorts, uh, <laughs> in Jersey. And while he was there, now Mordecai also lived across the street from CBGB. Okay. He lived right across Bowery on the uh, southeast corner of uh, Bowery and Bleecker. I was going to say Bleecker. In an apart- the little five-story building right up there on the top floor. Okay. Facing CBGB right on the top floor is where he lived. Now, one of our friends got arrested 
And he immediately called me up when he got out of jail. And he's calling everybody to give us warning. Um, while he was being talked to, before he was released, they had him in a room, and a couple of FBI agents walked in, and they said, we got it. We know. Right. You were fighting Nazis. We know you're not a Nazi. We're just trying to get a handle on things. We can't tell the difference. How do you tell the difference between a Nazi skin and a non-Nazi skin? And so Pete's, well, you know, there are certain, you know, certain symbols, you know, certain you, you, certain things you could see, certain things to look for. Sure. Because they're they're just trying to they're just trying to play catch up here, right? And the because it's in the news, there's an obligation. Well, what's the FBI doing? Right. There's an obligation for them to do something. And they open up a folder, and they pull out pictures of a bunch of skinheads. And they said, well, what can you tell us about these people? Not do you know them, but like we're trying to say, like here's, here's pictures of like a whole bunch of skinheads. Is that one a Nazi? Is that one? Like what should we be looking for? Right. Pete kept his mouth shut. I mean, he told them what they wanted to know about certain things. But what the FBI fucked up with, what Pete noticed immediately, and the FBI didn't realize that Pete noticed, all the pictures were skinheads in front of CBGB and all taken from an angle looking down. Fuck. So all these pictures, these beautiful 8x10 glossy pictures that the FBI had of skinheads were taken from Mordecai Levy's window. Motherfucker. And it's completely unlikely that the FBI knew that Mordecai Levy knew us. Right. (laughs) Fuck. Uh, Okay. And it's quite likely that whatever deal Mordecai had with the FBI to get him out of trouble and why he left the JDL, he was probably starting this organization just to attract people and feed them to the FBI. Right. And no doubt he would have fed us. So immediately also got on the phone to certain people who had been training with Mordecai out in Long Island and telling them, stop. Right. Mordecai's feeding information to the FBI. Fucking Mordecai Levy. But (laughs) it gets better. Okay. A couple of weeks later... Mordecai Levy gets into a shootout on Bleecker and Bowery across from Seabees. Okay. The JDL clearly came to kill him. They're banging on his door. Their story is, we were just kicking down his door because we wanted to talk to him. Right. Okay. So Mordecai has a shootout. Only one person gets shot. A a truck driver who was sitting in traffic on Bleecker Street. Um, So now Mordecai digs in. It was front page of the newspapers. There was a big standoff. I, I found it sometime online not so long ago. I, I looked it up and found like a PDF of the old Daily News cover of, you know, horror on the Bowery or whatever it was called. Right. And there were, you know, police armored cars everywhere and SWAT teams around the place. And Mordecai Levy being let out in cuffs. And the last time I saw Mordecai Levy was actually two weeks after that. Oh, fuck. And I thought, how the hell do you shoot someone on Bowery and have a standoff with the cops 
and then you're and out. lady, you're walking around. You're walking around. I don't know, Morty. He wasn't just walking around. Morty's if, up to some shady shit, not, that guy. If he could not be more suspicious, I was walking towards Seabees down Bleecker Street. And uh, he was on Bleecker and Lafayette, okay, a block from his house, sure, making a call from a phone booth a block from his house, okay. And I what guy leaving ain't too fucking slick, is he? <laughs> I walked by. As I walked by, I just yelled out, "Hey, Mordecai!" Oh god! And he fucking jumped out of his skin, and he like, like he thought he was going to get popped in the back of the head, right? <laughs> yeah, Mordecai ain't too slick. <laughs> so that's that's the story there of a. Uh, the FBI informant. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. The truth about why the weekly 80s matinees were ah! in 89. The truth. Let's start expo- let's let's start fucking I'm sure you're a well of information about things that people that were around, might have been told something, and still to this day believe certain yeah. things. Why oh, certain yeah. things went down? So let's expose that shit. Oh, and there's put a the lot truth out here. there because it just—it isn't just. Let's just fucking run it, through it. It doesn't just expose that. It also exposes the birth of ABC No Rio. Okay. Um, and I'm going to jump around here. Okay. I mean, kids booked shows. I booked shows. Right. You booked um, a bunch of CB shows a lot. Well, that was in the 90s and onward. Right. In the 80s, there were a couple people booking them, but from the mid-80s on to the end right. was Connie Hall. Never heard of her, but okay. You should. Never heard of her. Every great hardcore classic, hardcore matinee that you would have been into in the mid and late 80s, that was Connie Hall. Okay. Um, it's what she I wasn't did. around then. I wasn't around then. I was Yeah, young. well, I guarantee you half your record collection is because of her. Prep. Very she probably. is the reason that bands like Sick of It All and Raw Deal and all those bands came up. Okay. It was Connie Hall. Okay. Um, great woman. She was, she was always part of the scene. She's still alive? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Connie, um, Connie has stories. Uh, Connie is a wonderful girl. And uh, she also worked the bar at CB's. And she worked the bar at the matinees, which was a bit of a sacrifice because, let's be honest, mm. uh, even when there was a drinking crowd at CB's matinees, they weren't drinking at the bar. Right. They were drinking from the deli across the street. Of course. Um, but she did it for a love of it. and um, <laughs> This was... She was like the go-to in New York. She also was the go-to for a lot of film casting. Okay. When they needed punk rock extras, they called Connie from CBGB. Gotcha. Um, um, after hours, a bunch of people were like, she called me up for uh, to find a, they wanted a skinhead. She wanted to make sure she got a good guy. Uh, so I gave her Daryl from Citizen's Arrest for a uh, good guy. Make sure you get like, a good one. Yeah, yeah. She okay. didn't want anyone shady. Okay. Uh, for uh, Friday the 13th, Jason Takes Manhattan. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> I mean, awesome. But she also did, she was always doing stuff. Like, um, she got in touch with the, book, with the company they wanted. Uh, Stephen King had come up with lyrics for a song for uh, for the movie Pet Cemetery. Okay. And they wanted a punk rock band to do stuff. And she put a couple ba- got a couple bands interested, including mine. But then, you know, well... Right, they went with the Ramones. <laughs> Funny side note: I just I just googled Connie Hall CBGB's images. First thing that comes up is that flyer. 
<laughs> I don't know why. I don't know. Battle of the Bands SFA versus Bug Out Society. That was the very first ABC No Mirror Rio matinee. Four o'clock Saturday, three dollars. Sick. Go on. I'm sorry. There, there's there's a there's a reason why ABC No Rio matinee started, and it's that show, and it's from a bet that we lost. Um, we uh, can you pause this? Yeah. Please. Pausing. And the power of technology, we're back. And gas. Like, uh, I was booking bands for a while in uh, late 88 at a club called the Lismar Lounge. Okay. Um, we had some good shows. Mike Bullshit started that first one. Uh, it was part of being in a band was uh, sometimes the only way to get a booking is to make your own. Right. And that's how it started. And Mike took off. And I took over booking there. Booking was great. I um, charged four dollars, uh-huh. um, and the only the to rent the place was a hundred bucks, and it got a sound man out of the deal. That's fucking beautiful. And uh, I didn't. Ta- I ran the door, and I didn't take anything for myself. Right. I, I would take. I pull like five bucks off the top to cover the cost of making flyers. Okay. So even reasonable. Though, even though it was only four bucks. With only a hundred dollar overhead for the whole thing, we, we were able to uh, we were able to pay bands well. Right. And I booked a lot of big shows, and it ended because straight edge kids are fucking assholes. Um, <laughs> because the same people screaming about unity and support in the scene are the same ones fucking over everyone else and Re- fucking over the scene. And, yeah. Uh, we used to beg kids, you can't hang out in front of the club, call the cops, we're going to lose shows. Yep. Stop vandalizing the place and graffitiing. Uh-huh. We're going to lose the shows. Right. Um, you dumb fuck in the cargo shorts and the bleach blonde hair and the fucking running shoes, stop trying to kick out the ceiling panels cause to show how badass you are because we're going to lose the shows. Right. And we lost to shows uh, by early '89, but for a few months, it was going well. Where you had five dollar matinees on Sundays at CBS and four dollar matinees at Lismar. Right. Um, anyway, Connie was running things at CBS, and a lot of people think, yeah, there was violence. Was there? Sure. Were there? Was there some stupidity? Were there? The clicks and crews, the crew from Queens or the crew from Brooklyn. Sure. Uh, trying to show who's the most badass. Is it the Sunset Skins? Is it the original six people that were in DMS? Is it whoever? You know, it was... So, yeah. Was, was there occasional stupidity? Yeah. But it was never as bad as people made it out to be. Right. Things were always exaggerated. Sure. Um, and... Mm-hmm. We got notified. Uh, I got a call from Connie, very, very upset uh, that the matinees were going to be ending in November. Uh, this call came around October, and I had to I had to help her make some phone calls because we had to call some people and tell them your show's not going to happen. Right. And the reason they were ending had nothing to do with insurance. Had nothing to do had nothing to do with violence, had nothing to do with any of that. The rumor got spread that it was violence. And maybe that's for the best for a little bit, because the truth of the matter is, 
Karen Crystal. Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB. Yes. His ex-wife worked there on Sundays. She ran the matinees. You may hear stories, people complaining. In the late 80s, in 1985, they changed the drinking law to 21. Right. When the drinking law got changed to 21, a lot of the clubs, their liquor licenses changed, and you couldn't let under 16 in anymore, and you had to ID. And when it first began, the cops were cracking down. Right. It used to be... CBs, the drinking age was 18, and then yep. 19, and then 21. But when it was 18 and 19 as a drinking age, you could come in underage. Right. It wasn't 16 and over. When the liquor law changed, 21 to drink, 16 to enter for our class of liquor license. Right. So uh, Karen Crystal uh, started checking IDs and being hard on the kids. And a lot of kids complained, and you might hear stories from other people who were around in the 80s about the old lady at CB's who was giving everyone a hard time. That was Karen Crystal. And she was just... Protecting she was her just shit. Protecting her shit. Yeah. And especially the straight-edge kids used to bitch and, fuck CB's, burn that place down, yours lame is the Ritz, whatever. Oh, God. Fuck you straight-edge assholes. CBs put on shows for us. Yeah. And they treated CBs like it was the enemy. Um, so straight edge kids are the reason why oh, the days ended. That would be a whole, I could spend three hours parking. <laughs> no. The reason matinees ended, and yes, matinees picked up. But for people that were there, everyone knows the 80s matinees, which there were a few hiccups and a few, you know, short periods where there were no matinees. But for the most part, it was every Sunday, and for a while, Saturdays too. Yeah. Every Sunday, like going to church, it was that scene, that continuous movement. And then November of 1989, it stopped. Okay. It picked up later, but it was not the same. It was a very different thing. It wasn't... Not just because it was no longer actually the 80s, but it, it really wasn't the 80s matinees anymore. It was, a, it was a different vibe. It was a different feel. It was a different right. everything. Right. Um, and it also wasn't a regular thing. It was, we hope to have a matinee this Sunday. We'll see if we can get one this Sunday. Right. And if we had a few matinees in a row in the 90s or in the aughts, great. But back then it was See, that's when I started regular. going in. That, that's when I started going. Because um, in 1990, I was 15. I, I got it. You, you know, know what I mean? So, yeah. I wish I was back then in those mid-80s shows. I see those flies. It's fucking ridiculous. CBGB matinees ended. because Now, I was only part-time security at the time. Right. I could not... Be, a doorman position at CBGB is also a night manager position. You're running things. You're dealing with the money. You're, you're doing the divvy. You're paying people. Right. Um, I did not have that authority at CBGB yet. I say that because... The reason the 1980s CBGB matinees ended is because Hilly Crystal had a fight with his ex-wife and said, I don't want you working here anymore, not even on Sundays. And no one else wanted to work the door on Sundays. That's the reason. That's the reason. That's fucking ridiculous. It had nothing whatsoever to do. There were only three or four people who were allowed to work the door who had reached that level where they were trusted and been there long enough. Um, I didn't start working the door until 93. Right. Um, 
And none of them wanted to work on coming on a Sunday afternoon. That's it. And that's that. It's it's and that, that it's, was that. It's fucking ridiculous, man. That was that. Now this crosses over because no motherfucker wanted to work the. That was it. Door. That was the only fucking reason. In fact, in 1990, they tried it again. And this, I blame on the kids. And by the way, this segues into another point here. Um, in 1990, they tried, okay, well, let's bring it back. Only a few months later, summer of 90, and there were a couple shows. My band played with uh, Negazione from Italy. Okay. Uh, Oi Poloi played with Nausea. And uh, Killing Time played a show. And that ended it again. And that was because... It started because there's one guy, Dennis, is like, you know what, okay, I'll come, I'll work Sunday matinees. Uh, Connie convinced him, and Connie was still booking then. She got Negazione from Italy, she got Oi Poloi from Scotland, she had some other stuff, and she had a Killing Time show. And then some fucking asshole, it's usually the same thing, some asshole's gonna fuck it up. And there's then always bitch, oh, the asshole. Like some guy tried to walk in for free, and Dennis is working. Whoa, 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 buddy, it's five dollars. Right. And he flashed a gun at the doorman. Oh. One of on. one of the fucking killing times, friends. And Dennis just said, "I don't want to do this shit anymore." And that was it. No more matinees again. Fuck. <laughs> All because that one was because of some asshole. Jeez. Dennis didn't give a fuck about matinees. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do you a favor, Connie, and I'll come in and work on Sundays. And then, no, no, I'm not doing it anymore. Unbelievable. But this segues into what happened at ABC No Rio. Okay. Are you familiar with ABC No Rio? Me? Very little bit. I was yeah, there there's twice. a reason for that. I was there like twice. <laughs> there was a band that I saw there that were called Black Rain. Sure. They, I remember Black Rain. But they played like on like fucking... Yeah, they were like industrial stuff. Garbage yeah. cans and shit. Yeah. R-E-I-G-N, I believe. Right? Yes, yeah. I believe. Anyway, for some reason that band sticks out in my head. They'd be playing with pipes and fucking all kinds of weird shit. At least that show. Funny thing is, um, ABC Norio, little place on Rivington Street, months and months earlier, um, almost a year earlier, uh, Bug Out Society, band, band from Queens, very underrated, good, funny, heard of tongue in cheek band. Yeah, I heard of their, them. Their, their, their stuff was goofy. They used to make fun. They, they they were funny as fuck. Right. They used to make fun of all the straight edge stuff. Make fun of everything. They, they were a bunch of clowns. They, they were they were great guys. They had some catchy songs. They. They, they they used to hang it when the Beastie Boys were big in the late 80s. They they stood outside Madison Square Garden selling their records, just like the Beastie Boys, just like the Beastie Boys. Awesome. They would walk a, in the 80s. Uh, just like the Beastie Boys. <laughs> homeless homeless people uh, would, would sell street news on the subways to, rate, to help raise money. The, they used to walk around car to car in the subway selling their record, saying they were raising money for the homeless. You know what? Oh, <laughs> nice. And, but, and the, all their They're songs, hustling. That's awesome. <laughs> they were just a bunch of good guys, and they were funny, and they just made fun of a lot of stuff. Nice guys, and criminally underrated. They put out two... Uh, 
they, they would throw white castles at each other on stage. They had a song about it. All right. Uh, they had a song... Uh, Unity Love About getting married Kevin Seconds was the best man uh, Ray Capo officiated nah. uh, You know they, they just, 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 It was just silly stuff Silly shit Silly fun nonsense I uh, get it I think Fun shit I forgot the name of their first album Their second album was called Yo Baby Sup Yo uh, Baby Sup <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome and, um, I gotta check out Bug Out Society I, It was just goofy stuff Anyway we, we used to play together a lot Okay and you pulled up a flyer while you were looking up Connie Hall. Yeah, because well, that flyer, society. that flyer had absolutely nothing to do with Connie Hall. Um, yeah, they came up on Google Images, but it was the first ABC No Real matinee in April of 1989. Um, months earlier, we uh, SFA and Bug Out Society. We used to play together all the time, right. and we went bowling one day, and we decided. Okay. One night we went. Out, we had a couple beers. We went bowling, and we said, "You know, whoever loses, whoever loses has to open for the other one at the next show." Okay. We lost. Um. We lost, and so Charlie from Bug Out Society went and found a place for us to play. ABC No Rio had done some like some art shows, some performance art stuff, and a couple punk shows actually happened there. He booked that show. <clears throat> we rented a sound system. We had like 20 people there because it was on Rivington Street in the middle of nowhere. Right. And we opened up for SFA. For, we, we opened up for Bug Out Society. Okay. Because we lost the bowling match with them. Nice. And what's sad is we lost the bowling match the same night that Mike Bullshit officially quit the band. Okay. Um, had Mike Bullshit quit the band... Before we bowled that night, instead of when after we bowled, we would have won because he brought our average down. Oh shit! Gutter balls, gutter balls. <laughs> um, but he quit the band later that night, and uh, Bug Out Society found this place. We played a show there, and Mike Bullshit is the reason for ABC No Real matinees starting in a way, the full time matinees. Um, I called up Mike in October of 89 to say, hey, listen, your show in November at CB's, it's not happening. Okay. Because I'm giving you the heads up. Uh, Connie just called me. There's no more matinees. Fine. They're ending. Sorry. And Mike, being Mike, who booked tons of shows, tons of places, but I used to book them too. A lot of the places that I booked, I was only booking because Mike showed me how. Because Mike was, Mike would Mike, I would help Mike book a show at downtown Beirut too, or at Lismar. And because I was with Mike, I got to know the guy, and then I'd come back without him. Right. Um, and so, a couple days after I broke the news to Mike, he, Mike, Mike immediately, he went out looking for another venue. He decided if matinees are closing there, we got to start matinees somewhere else. Right. And Mike's like, hey, you have the number for that guy at ABC No Rio. Yeah. And there you go. And uh, Mike, starting, I guess it was late November, maybe early December, we started doing matinees at ABC. And here's a story that needs to be told. When ABC No Rio started up, you had this empty basement, and you also had the second floor, which we didn't get to later. Um, there was no sound system. 
Right. Uh, there was this guy named John. Last name I can't remember him. Okay. Uh, and he had a he had a sound system, and he used to do sound for all the squatter rot shows, which were these amazing shows that were happening also in the late eighties. Uh, booked by Ralphie, and uh, uh, he would for whatever seventy five bucks or whatever it was, you helped him load in load out. He'd do sound, and he had a PA. Okay. Small, but it's ABC. No Whatever video, works, but a big right. one. Sure. And uh, so we rented every week. On Saturdays, we rented the PA from him, and we put on matinees. And we did it old school style. You know, we, we, we didn't have enough money to put an ad in the paper or anything. Uh, we were just going around flyering. Okay. And word of mouth and doing the best we could. And, you know, start with 50 people, 100 people, and 150 people. You know, those were great. And many shows that had less than that. Um, Mike took off. Mike was booking. I was booking. And Gavin. Uh, Gavin was also a big part of the beginning. Gavin. Gavin Van Vleck. Okay. Gavin was a big part of the beginning of ABC No Rio. Okay. I'm talking about those first few weeks. You know, I just recently did an episode with Gavin. I know. Yeah. Um... Uh, I'm surprised. There was a lot he could have talked about that he... Especially Absolution and all that. A lot, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gavin was a big part of the beginning of ABC No Real, but me and Gavin both had a problem. Um, We both had uh, family obligations. Okay. We couldn't spend a lot of time there. Okay. Um, Mike, as Mike did at the time, Mike... After spending more than a couple months in New York, he, he left New York. So it was me and Gavin doing ABC, and then uh, there was kid Freddie Alva, yes, uh, who had a he put out the book. new breed, the new breed compilation tape, <laughs> the new breed compilation tape. Um, Freddie Alva became a big part of it, and then we also as as it grew, uh, once we got into 1990, ABC No Rio started growing, and we needed. We needed, okay, we needed people on the regular doing stuff. And because I had I had a pregnant girlfriend who had just, in now the spring of 90, uh, had just given birth to twins. Okay. And I couldn't, you know, full-time. I didn't have, if I had a free day where I wasn't working, I couldn't attend collective meetings. Right. I had to be there with my babies. Sure. Um... But in the beginning, there was a small circle of people. Freddie, very quickly, by the middle of 1990, Freddie had stepped in and and really taken the reins on things. But because to make things function there, and we were also starting to work on getting money to no longer rent a PA every week, but to just buy a permanent PA and keep it there. Um, There was a roundtable collective of people, uh, volunteers, and things, like in some freaking commune, things were put up to a vote. Okay. And in the original core group of people, you had Sam McFeeters from Born Against. You had Freddie Alva. You had Chris Sports from Slug and Less Fanzine. Great fanzine. Great girl. In fact, she went from... She was probably the greatest voice of reason at ABC No Rio. And her fanzine was incredible. Okay. It was all... It was all, you know... Just 
mass printed and stapled together. Sure. Um, but she covered everything. She covered the big hardcore shows. She covered the little squat shows. She covered a lot of what was going on with the uh, Sub Pop Records bands and all this stuff. What was the name of that zine? Slug and Lettuce. Slug and Lettuce. Okay. okay. It became... Eventually it became, as, at least as far as from my perspective, it started focusing more on, you know, the whole uh, anarchist punk rock okay. uh, aspect. But it was probably one of the only zines that I saw at the time. It wasn't like there were straight-edge zines that focused on straight-edge. Right. Like nothing else existed. Right. Then there were the bands that, oh, then there were the zines that, oh, you call yourself a New York hardcore zine, meanwhile... You, only four bands exist. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, look, it's Agnostic Front, Sick of It All, and Killing Time in Murphy's Law again. Right. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and then, um, but her, she covered everything. You know, she would do an article about some local scum rock band. She would do an, she would, she would do something about, you know, big hardcore mad at CBs. She'd do something with the Lunachick. She'd do something with the Melvins. I mean, when it was all still underground. Sure. Um, and, uh, the lunatics, Jesus Christ. She also, very wisely, so she could be taken seriously at the time, she went by Chris instead of Christine, so people would, writing her and, you know, buying her zine, wouldn't know that it was a girl. Right. Once they knew, she started getting all kinds of crazy mail. Right. But she was, she was good, and she was also the voice of reason at that place. Uh, and I say voice of reason because this is, this is important. ABC No Rio... The people running the place started to envision themselves as the heroes of the scene, the saviors of the scene. And they saw what was happening elsewhere. There were these, there were larger shows at venues like the Ritz or Club Chaos or the Marquee with the same four bands. Right. Um, and it wasn't just looking at what was happening as ABC you No know, Rio is different. They were looking at anything outside of ABC you No know, Rio as the fucking enemy. Right. And I used to try to fight back against it. I used to try to push back. It, it, it was literally as if they, 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 they told themselves, we were the nerds who got picked on at CB's matinees, and now we have our scene. You know, equality for all, but it was really more like, we're anti-elitist. No, you're not. Right. You become elitist yourself. Exactly. I, there was one meeting in particular that stands out. Um, I went... There was we had a bunch of shows all booked, and we're all sitting around talking about okay who's going to work the door for this one who's going to be there for that who could be here in time for load in you know to all this stuff you know running a place, and I said you know what somebody needs to do I, I got kids I can't take a Friday night off there's a big show at the Marquee sick of it all is playing whatever blah 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 somebody should go there and hand out flyers and we've got to remember we had no ads in the papers or right. anything like that. And, well, we don't want those people at our show. Well, what do you mean you don't want those people? We don't want those, that CB's, that old CB's crowd, the the violent people and all that. It's like, whoa. Yeah. That's not, okay, you don't want people at your shows. Okay, that's fucking weird. And that's fucked up for touring bands right. that have come to ABC No Rio and play in front of 10 people right. because you don't want to tell anyone about the shows. Right, that's fucking ridiculous. Um, and more importantly, I argued, listen, forget those people you don't like. You want to name some names or whatever. What about some new kid who's just getting into hardcore? Right. And he's hungry. He's looking for a place like this. Right. How is he going to know about it unless you tell him? Well, we don't want anyone to know about it. Dude, you can't keep this our own little secret. Yeah. We had a vote. And I think with the exception of me and Chris Bortz, everyone 
you know, nope, we don't want anyone knowing about it. And they painted this history that CBGB was this violent hell fest and that ABC Norea was a safe place away from the elitists. Oh, Jesus. Where all were welcome. And, and they, they created this history, and when you repeat a lie enough, people believe it. Right. I mean, great. What was happening at ABC No Real was great. And there not only was it great that there were shows on a regular basis, a place for people to come and really be themselves, it also gave exposure to some great bands at the time. Yeah. I mean, we played there all the time, but it was also, you know, there were a lot of bands that would have never gotten noticed. Citizens Arrest, Rorschach, Born Against, all grew up out of that scene and wonderful. Right. But... There was this elitism, this trying to keep it private, that that carried on for years. Um, This private club that they wanted to keep exclusive and not tell anyone about. You could, because a lot of these people were also, they wrote for fanzines and stuff. If you lived in fucking Italy, you knew more about ABC No Rio than someone who lived 10 blocks away. That's fucking Because that's hard. just the way it worked. Right. And you'd be a band from California, you come to play ABC No Rio, you've read all about it, you've heard about it, you know, you come and there's 20 people there because no one fucking knows about the show. Right. And recently, and here's where I really talk shit. Okay. Recently, there was a retrospective. And... I was invited to speak, you know, hey, we're we're doing a we're doing a twentieth anniversary with a twentieth or twenty-fifth anniversary of what? Of ABC okay. No Real. Um I didn't even hear about that. Yeah. Anyway, we're doing a twenty-fifth anniversary of ABC No Rio. We're gonna have a, a a gallery opening, we're gonna have a we're gonna have an art exhibition, some bands are gonna perform, and some people are gonna speak. We want you to be a part of it. Yeah, sure, fuck yeah. Yeah. Um and I made the mistake of saying, listen, you should also, I'm also not going to, I'm going to tell you. And we were talking about what was going to be talked about. And I stopped. I said, whoa, 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 that's, that's, that's not true. That's not what happened. Right. Um, ABC No Rio was not, you know, the safe space away from the violent hellhole that closed down the matinees at CBT. He said, that's not why matinees closed. Right. It didn't close because of violence. Stop saying that because it is a lie. Right. It is not true. And if you get up and say that at this anniversary retrospective, when I get up, I will fucking correct that because it is not true. Right. And it's also, it wasn't anti-elitist. Right. It was elitist unto itself. Correct. It wasn't everyone is welcome. Right. They didn't like that too much, huh? (laughs) I was disinvited. Of course you were. Of course you were. And I also called up a friend of mine who wrote an article for the New York Times about ABC No Rio, if you're listening. Um, I called him up and I said, what the fuck is this? Because you got facts wrong. Who did you fact checked with? And he, well, they, they told me that this is what happened. I said, why didn't you call me? He was a friend of mine. He said, you knew I was one of the people who started ABC New Rio and you knew me from working at CBGB. Why are you repeating these lies about CBGB without fact checking? Well, I did fact check. 
where did you fact check? I went to the ABC No Rio website, and there was the information. So, so wait a second. Somebody told you something, and to <laughs> fact check them, you went to their website. Right. <laughs> of course. Well, if it's on the website, I guess it's true. If it's on the internet, it's true. Yeah. All right, how about this? The truth about the closing of CBGBs. Oh, Jesus. That's that's a tough one. Okay. That is a tough one. People think, oh, they didn't have money to pay their rent anymore, any of that. It's not true. We did. But they did raise the rent, though. That's correct. Oh, to say they raised the rent is an understatement. They raised it like crazy. Um, Hilly regrets. In the early 90s, I remember standing with him in front of uh, CB's. He had the opportunity. The people who owned the building, uh, they wanted to sell. Um, and they offered. They went to Hilly first. Well, you've been here for since 73. Would you like to buy the building? And it wasn't that expensive at the time. What year is this? What year? This was probably around the time of our 20th anniversary, 1993. Okay. And uh, at the time, the neighborhood, which is very different now. Oh, sure. Even in 93, it was still... Reasonable. It was still, the price was reasonable. The neighborhood we still had next door to us. They hadn't built the NYU uh, dormitory yet. Right. There was a parking lot on the corner to yes. our north. Yep. To our south uh, was an empty lot. Right. That corner, yes. it was an empty dirt lot. I remember. Across the street was a freaking bodega. Yeah. Above that was a Dominican whorehouse. Okay. Finding that out too late? Sorry. <laughs> I had no idea, but okay. Um, the neighborhood was still sketchy. And Finding that corner, out too late? <laughs> on the corner, across the street, was a dilapidated, closed-down gas station that had been there for years. Okay. Um, jump forward, by the time we were closing, and it was obvious, we looked out dormitory, there was a bank being built, upscale handbag boutique across the street, condominiums directly across. Uh, A couple blocks down, you have your little place where you can get your tea and people sit outside with their pinky out, little cafes, bougie. We saw what was happening. We we saw the writing on the wall. But uh, in uh, in 93, he had a chance to buy the building and he, he chickened out. The owners, the, the new owners, were, were, were some company that probably had like 30 people who owned multiple things, right. fingers in many pies, owned many properties, and one of them being that property. And what they did was they gave a 30-year lease for the entire building to the Bowery Residence Committee, the BRC, right. which is a homeless outreach program. That is fully subsidized by the city, by the way. Um, and the stipulation in their lease was their lease taking over the building was they, that they inherited CBGB as tenants. And they inherited our lease. Oh, God. They didn't want us from the get-go. The Bowery Residence Committee wanted us out. We owned, at the time, we owned uh, 315 Bowery yep. 
and 313 Bowery right. to our south, and also 317 Bowery to our north. Okay. When the lease expired on 317, they gobbled it up. You can't have it back. Um, we had years to go. <clears throat> the lease for CB's and CB's Gallery next door yeah. expired in 2005. But the Bowery Residence Committee, they charged us rent that basically paid their lease, too. So we were paying rent for the whole building. No big deal. Right. That's how it works. We could afford it. wasn't bad. It was expensive. How much was it a month? Um, at the time, it was like, I think it might have, I don't know what it was then. I know what it was at the end, and it's going to blow your fucking mind. Um, it was $36,000 a month at the end. In 2005, 2006. Right. Now, oh, no, it was more than that by 2006. So what because year? What year was it? Thirty five thousand dollars a fucking month. Two thousand five. Which you consider this Jesus for a second. Christ. You consider how we were able to pay bands and keep things open when our rent was a thousand dollars a day. No shit. Just the rent, not the operating costs or anything. Just the rent. Okay. So when people oh SCBs is greedy, fuck you. And when people complain. That our T-shirts were selling out, or we were when we started mass selling the T-shirts, the actual CBGB shirts, the actual CBGB yeah. shirts, and they were suddenly CBGB shirts were available online and in malls and whatever. People were like, oh, CBGB sold out. Fuck you, we sold out, motherfucker. We need to pay the fucking rent here. Those T-shirts, those T-shirts are the reason why you could play in front of a hundred people with very few people drinking and still walk out with money, right? Because those T-shirts pay the rent. Right. Being very frank about it. Yeah. But from the get-go, the landlord wanted us out. He didn't want to wait. And he did some shady-ass shit. He would cut our water. He would cut our heat. He was... And remember, at the time, I said there was no one around us. Right. Cops would come in. We got noise complaints from neighbors. Really? Really. <laughs> what neighbors? Yeah, really. Is it the em- the rats in the empty lot next door? Right. Did the Dominican brothel across the street call on us? Right. You know, who, who, who's calling on us? Right. Who the fuck is calling on us? The parking lot? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking um, such bullshit. It was then. And then at one point they did a construction on the facade of the building, and they put up a scaffolding that blocked CBGB awning. The construction lasted a few months, but they kept the scaffolding up for two years. Beyond Done the suit to get rid of purpose, it, of course. Even after the permit for the scaffolding had expired, <laughs> months okay. after the scaffolding, they just left it up because they wanted to fuck with us. They want people to drive by and not see CBGB, walk down and not see us because we were blocked. They did everything they could, and the final thing they did. Which is why there is a rumor that people say, oh, you weren't paying your rent. No, no, we always paid our rent. The BRC, the Bowery Residence Committee, which had homeless outreach, the guy who ran it was a guy named Muzzy Rosenblatt. Before he ran this homeless outreach group, he was in charge of the Department of Homeless Services for the city of New York. Okay. So then he retired from there took over a homeless organization and got a con- and got a beautiful sweet contract with 
the Department of Homeless Services mm-hmm. from the new supervisor who he had promoted before he left. Ah. Uh, and Department of Homeless Services paid all their expenses. They had no overhead. I mean, they still took donations and whatever, but it just went into bank accounts gathering. Um, in addition to us paying their rent, DHS was paying their rent, their salaries for their people, and giving them something like $300 a night for every homeless person they brought in each day. Um, so money was never an issue. With our rent, every month, the first of the month, Louise, the general manager, would cut a check. One of the interns would run upstairs, hand it to them, and get a receipt. Hmm. In the early 2000s, one day, they stopped giving receipts. And the person in the now office... Fuck that. Uh, but, but, but the person... Oh, we, we don't have receipts handy. But you know what? You have the canceled check. Yeah. yeah. Write it on a fucking brown paper bag with a signature. Right, right, right. But the check, which was, you know... It was a business check mm-hmm. from... Sarab Restaurant Corporation, which was CBGB's official. Okay. The, the, the official incorporation. What was and it called? Sarab, S A R E B. Okay. It was an amalgamation of uh, Hilly and Karen's name and something else. Okay. Um, I just never knew that. I just That's cool. Go ahead. That was just the official corporate identity. Okay. And it was printed check with the amount and rent for yeah. the month. So it was, well, okay, no big deal. We don't have a receipt. They cash our checks. That's our receipt. Mm-hmm. A year goes by, and then lawyers come in and serve CBs with an eviction notice for unpaid rent. Bullshit, we say. We go to court with a stack of canceled checks. Yeah. And bank statements. Hey, we paid the rent. Funk you. Yeah. And then they did this. Well, we forgot to tell you that we raised your rent. See, that's bullshit. We forgot ah. to tell you. We forgot to tell you that shouldn't be In the lease, me. in the 20-page lease, on page 7, art, part, paragraph, whatever, it said that after X number of years, uh, the BRC could raise the rent by this percent. Could. Could. Not will. But, could. But, or that it will be raised by this percent okay. but they could raise it by as much as this percent so they immediately did and they didn't tell us they'd been accepting our checks and then they said your honor the rent was actually $5,000 more per month and when you add that up, it was, it was more than that right. it was like it's $10,000 more per month they've been underpaying for a year they owe us $120,000 um, and the judge said, well, why did you take their checks? Yeah. Well, it was an oversight. Did you forget to tell them that you raised rent? Yeah, we forgot to f- tell them to raise the rent. But it's our contention they still owe us. Right. And Hilly said, no, 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 this is bullshit. We're fighting this. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, it wasn't even that. Hilly said, fine. We'll cut you a check for the 120000 and you better start giving us receipts now. Right. And they said, we don't want the 120000 We want you out. Now. Today. Motherfuckers. Hilly went to court. And when CB's was closing, Muzzy's people went to the press. They had good public relations people. We didn't. 
they went to the press and they were like, oh, we really don't want to kick them out, but they're not paying their rent. Oh, you Muzzy's a jerk off, huh? <laughs> and so the consensus was, wow, I really feel bad for CBs, but they're not paying their rent, so... Right. Now, eventually, we won. And it was in the newspapers. You could look it up. It was like in 2005. We won in court. We won in court, and the judge... Because, you know, this this dragged on. The judge basically said, you guys are a bunch of assholes. This is some shady shit. Yep. Um, what you did was fucked up. You, try, you, you This was. It's obvious you were trying to be sneaky to force them out and do yes. an eviction. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, CBGB, you won. This is bullshit. You owe nothing. But. Uh, there's the big but. I can't stop them from letting your lease expire in the summer of 2005. Fuck. And because we're not a residence, they could, they had no, they could throw us out. Right. So our lease expires in the summer of 2005, but more importantly, the BRC stopped talking to the press altogether. So the press didn't have any new statements, they just had the old story. Um, we won, but we couldn't stay. So we fought, and here's something nobody fucking knows. Even people who are following this in the press, a little secret. Okay. Behind the scenes, there were a bunch of celebrities that got involved, led by Little Steven from the East Street Band. Yes. To try to save the club. I remember that whole thing. Also, yeah. by the way, the benefits shows that were happening in the summer yeah. of 2005, we didn't make a penny off of those. Because we were flying these bands in, and they weren't doing it for free. Right. We were flying. There was only one show that turned a profit. Everything else turned a loss. We were flying big punk rock bands in from all over the world to play, and it was costing us. It was. We weren't doing it to raise money. We were doing it to raise awareness. Right. And little Steven decided he got a bunch of people together. There, there was the outward trying to negotiate with them. And then he went to Muzzy Rosenblatt secretly um, with an offer because they are a charity. They're, they're, they're a homeless service. And it was also hard for the press. The mayor's office didn't want to get involved because as much as they wanted to help landmark CBGB and save us, they also saw the bad publicity of taking sides against a homeless organization. Um, uh. So basically, they went to the BRC and they said, listen, what does every charitable organization want? Publicity. Sure. If you allow CBGB to stay, if you renew their lease with a rent increase, if you renew their lease and allow them to stay, I guarantee you, and this this was done privately, and I, I can't name names because it was done privately. Okay. Um, here is a list of some big artists that will do promotional stuff on your behalf. And we're talking about platinum selling, you know, yeah. arena filling artists. Right. They will do benefits for you. They will do free charity work for you. They will come out as spokespeople for you. Mm-hmm. As a charity, this is what you want. In addition to that, 
CBGB will every few months run big benefit shows for you. Right. And I could promise you the following artists will play. Right. And they will be heavily publicized. Sure. And it was, wow, what an incredible offer. No charitable organization could turn down something like that. And they did. They absolutely did. What's come big? And what it was all about was Muzzy Rosenblatt, the head of the BRC, hated Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB. Hilly Crystal also developed lung cancer. Right. And in the final months of CBGB being uh, open, well, by the way, we didn't close in 2005. Right. This is 06. We closed in 06. And one of the things we did, which was fucking totally cool in punk rock, mm-hmm. we squatted that fucking building. Nice. On closing night, August, the end of August. I wish I had a piece of that fucking place, man. The, the end of August 2005, the plan was this. The moment we roll down the gates and close, they could take over. They cut our padlocks, put on their own, were closed out. Right. So we stay open 24 hours. And we did. Nice. I That first night, when September 1st came, I was there all morning until the day people came. And every night, people stayed overnight. And every night, for the first week or so, the BRC came to try to padlock us, but they couldn't because we were in there. Gotcha. We occupied the space illegally. Nice. <laughs> Fuck them. And then we went to court to argue about getting thrown out and to try to get a new lease, squatter's rights and all that. Right. And what we were able to do was we were able to get an extension. Okay. An agreed-upon extension where we wouldn't fight anymore. We got one year. They gave us one year at double the rent. And we had to agree not to try to seek landmark status. Fucking scumbag. And that's how it ended. And worse, that last year, when Hilly got cancer... He was undergoing chemotherapy, and he was out of it. He wasn't aware of what was happening around him. Um, His daughter, Lisa Crystal, got involved and started running things in his stead. Now, his daughter was very active in the 70s and in the 80s there. Then she had her own family, her kids, and she really came in once or twice a month. Yeah. Uh, When she came in to take over... People had been working there for decades, and she didn't even know who they were or what they looked like. And right. long-time employees had never even heard her name. She really didn't give a shit about that place by the end. And she didn't care if it closed. Mm-hmm. She kind of wanted it to close. Right. She wanted to be done with it. Done with it, sell it, move on. Right. Hilly did not. It was like, if he'd seen the Lord of the Rings films, and I specifically refer to the films instead of the books... Um, the king of Rohan, who's all old and out of it, okay. and being given bad advice in his ear, mm-hmm. uh, that was Hilly Crystal. Gotcha. He was going through chemotherapy, and his daughter was grim, a worm tongue, feeding bad advice in his ear. And by the t- in in the movie, finally, when he snaps out of it, it's you know he's lost so much and doesn't realize it. That's kind of what happened to Hilly. Gotcha. Hilly didn't recover from 
his chemotherapy until after the club was closed. So he was in a daze and out of it most days. And by the time he was clear-headed again... It was too late. It was gone. gone. It was gone, and uh, he died a couple months later. Yep, I remember that. Which was... Crazy. Sort of poetic. Yes. It it was. You know, the land and the king are one. Yep. And when the land suffers, the king suffers. Crazy. Um, And he went with it. He went with Seabees. Yep. And in his final days, uh, sadly, while fighting over the rights, his daughter prevented people from visiting him. Unbelievable. And so he kind of died alone in a hospital bed, probably wondering why people weren't coming to see him. Jesus Christ. Sad, man. It's fucking It is. It's fucking sad. I'm happy to continue and keep rambling about other shit, but you keep looking at the time. Well, I do have to keep looking at the time because I do have to go, but I was just going to say, because there's a couple of things on that list, you want to do a part three? I'm totally down. With that, you'll be the first one that I do a part three with, <laughs> and that's fucking awesome. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Uh, we'll do a part three. Bro, we went over another two hours. Bro, there's going to be like nine hours of fucking Brendan stories, which I'm cool with too. That's awesome, dude. Let's do a part three. I'll do part three. Okay, we'll do part three. We'll set it up. Uh, yeah, this, yeah, happened, yeah. this happened within a couple of weeks anyway, so within another couple of weeks, we'll fucking do it. I'll tell you the story of how a shitty sheer terror record prevented us from getting assigned to a major label. Good, we can do that one too. <laughs> we'll start off with part three to that. But this time, we're going to fucking close with fucking on and on. Are you? Yes. Are you really? Yes. So with that... Ladies and gentlemen, this is the conclusion of part two. We will be back for a part three because there's there's probably ten more fucking podcasts that we could probably do about just stories of bands and shows and nonsense that happened at CBGB's. No? Probably. Definitely. So, but with that, we're going to close with... What are we closing with, Brendan? Well... This this time it's going to (laughs) happen. This is a song on and on. I was asked to pick a song... And this one is interesting just because it's so different from the rest of what we do. And it's fucking great fucking song. On and on. Off of Solace. SFA. Always a pleasure, Brendan. Jimmy, a <laughs> <My> pleasure. <man. laughs> Until the next time. Until the next time. Later. Later.